The New Testament reading is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. The sermon text is Psalm 38. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, Psalm 38. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 38 now. The title of Psalm 38 is A Psalm of David for the Memorial Offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also is gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it today. Psalm 38 may be categorized as a psalm of lament or a psalm of sorrow. This is one of the reasons that the psalms are so loved. They express the whole range of human emotion. There is a psalm for every season of life, therefore. 
There are psalms of praise. There are psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of confidence. But there are also psalms of lament. And this is because life is not always easy for God's people. God's people do sometimes suffer in this world. There is such a thing as the dark night of the soul. And psalms of lament can help us to run to God in the midst of our suffering. These psalms may help us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that that at the proper time He may exalt us. They help us to cast our anxieties on Him and to remember also that He cares for us. We are to notice that this is what David does in Psalm 38. He runs to the Lord in his affliction. After expressing his sorrow, he acknowledges God's presence, saying in verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you, my sign is not hidden from you. And then in verse 15, he reasserts his faith, saying, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And as I have said, psalms of lament show us how to run to God and to wait on the Lord in the midst of our suffering. Psalm 38 is a psalm of lament, but we may also classify this psalm with even greater precision as a penitential psalm. Penitential psalms are psalms of repentance, and there are seven such psalms in the Psalter. Psalm 6, 32, 38 here, 51, 102, 130, and 43. So there are seven psalms that are rightly classified as penitential psalms, psalms that involve repentance. And as we analyze this psalm together, it will become clear that this is what David is in fact doing here. He is not only bringing his sorrows to the Lord, but he is repenting before the Lord. David's suffering in this instance had something to do with David's sin. And so David runs to God in his suffering But he does also repent. And this is also helpful for the people of God. For God's people do struggle with many sins as they sojourn in this world. And sometimes our sin does bring about suffering. In this psalm, we learn that even when our suffering is the result of our sin, even as we languish under the chastisement of the Lord, even still we are to run to God and not from Him. I think this is a very important thing for the people of God to understand. Even when our suffering is the result of our sin, even when the chastisement of the Lord is upon us, even still we are to run to God and not from Him. And so Psalm 38 is a penitential psalm. Look with me now at verses 1-4 through where the psalmist says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me. And your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. In this instance, David knew that his suffering was the consequence of his sin. We might ask, well, what sin of David brought about the suffering? And we don't know for sure. The text does not say Perhaps it was one of the sins of David that are recorded for us in the pages of Holy Scripture, or perhaps it was another sin. We we simply do not know. We may only guess. But we do know that David was suffering, and that David knew that this suffering was the consequence of his sin. 
Sometimes our sins have natural consequences. The sin of lying will often naturally lead to fractured relationships. The sin of fornication may lead to disease. Sin is often accompanied by what we might call natural consequences. Our sin always has spiritual consequences. When the people of God sin, the Spirit of God is grieved within them. Sometimes our sin will even lead us into seasons of of doubt and despair. And sometimes we are able to discern that the suffering we are enduring, be it physical or spiritual or both, is in fact God's discipline upon us. And please note that I said sometimes. The scriptures are very clear that not all suffering is the direct consequence of some sin that we have committed. There's a whole book of the Bible that has this as one of its major themes, that is the book of Job. And certainly we could pile up examples from Scripture and from the history of the church of men and women who suffered in the flesh, though they were doing right in God's sight. Christians sometimes suffer, but it is not always the Lord's chastisement upon them. It is not always the Lord's discipline. And Christ is, of course, the supreme example of this. He suffered greatly in the flesh, and yet He knew no sin. So it is not always possible, then, to draw a straight line between our suffering and some particular sin that we have committed. Suffering is not always the chastisement of the Lord. Sometimes we simply suffer because we live in a fallen world, and because God wishes to refine us through the suffering to bring about some good, and to glorify His name somehow. So, we should not assume that every ache and pain, every sniffle, every heartache and sorrow of life is the Lord's discipline upon us. We may say that it is the Lord's will, for nothing happens apart from His will. There there is a purpose and meaning in, in everything, therefore. And we may say that it is the sanctifying work of the Lord. Yes, the Lord is always sanctifying or refining His people, And often He does this through difficulty, through trial and tribulation. But we must not say that every bit of suffering we endure is the Lord's chastisement. I think think you can see how problematic this could become. You know, so-and-so is sick, and if the congregation has poor doctrine on this matter, then the question is, well, what have you done wrong? Where is the hidden sin in your life? Obviously, there is a connection between your Sickness and some sin that you are hiding in your heart. Uh, this, is, this is very bad doctrine, brothers and sisters. We are not to go here. Not all suffering is the Lord's discipline upon us. But in this instance, whatever the circumstances were, David was able to draw a straight line between his suffering and his sin. He knew that the Lord was chastising him in this moment. He knew that his affliction was the discipline of the Lord. Here again, verse 3, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation or anger. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, he says. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And in verse 2, David confessed that the suffering was in fact the discipline of the Lord, saying, For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. And this is why, in verse 1, David cried out for mercy, saying, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. 
We know that God will never pour out His wrath on those He loves, that is, on those who have taken refuge in Christ. But that did not stop David from praying in this way, and, and neither should it stop us. It is right for us to say, Lord, we know that we deserve Your wrath, but have mercy on us for Christ's sake. Lord, be gracious to us in Jesus' name. Rebuke us not in Your anger, nor discipline us in Your wrath. Have mercy, Lord. That is the prayer of David here. And we know that He will, if we are in Christ Jesus, for Christ endured the wrath of God in our place. This is the Gospel. Christ endured the wrath of God in our place. In Him we are washed. In Christ we are covered. His righteousness has been applied to us through faith. He is our refuge. This is the Gospel, and we are to believe in it. But when the Lord disciplines us, we may come to Him and say, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us for Christ's sake. And we should never forget that the Lord does discipline those He loves. The Lord does discipline those He loves. As Hebrews 12.6 says, The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. We must never forget this, brothers and sisters. We must never despise the discipline of the Lord. And though it is true that for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, we are to remember that later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is Hebrews 12, 11. So never will God pour out His wrath on those who are in Christ Jesus, for we have fled to Christ for refuge. But He will discipline those who are His. And this He does in love. Here in verses 1-4, through four, David confesses his sin and acknowledges that his suffering is the result of his sin. He was experiencing the natural consequences of his actions, whatever they were. And more than this, the Lord was disciplining him through the suffering. The Lord's hand was, was upon him and against him here. But do not miss this one fact. David ran to the Lord and not away from Him, even as he endured the Lord's chastisement. I think that is the thing to be noticed. David ran to the Lord and not away from Him. The psalm begins with these words, O Lord. What is David doing here? He, he's coming to God in the midst of his suffering as he is being disciplined by the Lord, evidently very severely. And he comes to God and says, O Lord, O Yahweh, covenant-keeping Lord. He runs to the Lord. He ran to the Lord and cried out for grace and mercy. And here is the difference between the faithful and the unfaithful, the righteous and the wicked. When the wicked endure God's judgment, what do they do? They flee. In fact, their hearts may grow harder and harder to the things of the Lord. But what do the righteous do? What do God's children do when the Lord disciplines them? They run to the Father knowing that God disciplines His children in love and for, and for their good. Those who have been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb endure God's discipline because, again, they know it is in love. And so they run to the Lord, who is their Heavenly Father. And so this is the first point of the sermon today. When the Lord chastises you, do not run from the Lord, but in humility confess your sin and run to the Lord to receive mercy and grace. Let us go now to verses 5-8 through eight where we read, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the days I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan 
because of the tumult of my heart. So it appears that David was both physically and spiritually afflicted. And this affliction, as I've already said, was the result of sin. Here David says that it was because of my foolishness. And sin is foolishness. When we sin against God, we exchange that which is good, beautiful, and life-giving for that which is ugly, detestable, for that which leads only to death and decay. And David says elsewhere, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The one who is wise loves God's law. The one who is wise keeps God's law. But sin is folly. To live in disobedience to God's commands is to choose the wrong path, a path that leads only to death and destruction. And David had gone down the path of folly. But because David belonged to the Lord, the Lord was faithful to discipline him so as to turn him around so that he might set his feet upon the right path again. I will say it again, it would be wrong to interpret every bit of suffering we endure as the Lord's chastisement, but it would also be wrong, it would also be wrong to forget that the Lord does discipline those He loves. When we suffer, we should at least ask the question, what is the Lord teaching me through the suffering? How is He refining me? How is He working to strengthen me. Do you ask that question when you suffer? I'm afraid that many times we forget to ask that question. We focus on the suffering. We only wish to have it removed and removed quickly. But as God's people, we must learn to ask the question, Lord, what are you doing through this? How are you seeking to refine me? And more than that, we should also ask the question, is there some sin in my life? that this suffering is the result of? Is the Lord disciplining me here? Is He chastising me here? We need to ask these questions at least without falling into that error of assuming that every ache and pain is the discipline of the Lord. But sometimes the Lord does discipline us for our, for our sins. There is always sin, brothers and sisters. We always come short of God's law and thought, word, and deed. And I'm not talking about those sins that you struggle with and struggle against. No, instead I'm talking about unrepentant sin, intentional sin, sins committed with a high, arrogant, and rebellious hand. And I hope that you can see the difference between those two types of sin, you know. We sin, but as God's children who are walking faithfully with Christ, we should always hate that sin. And once we recognize it, turn from it quickly, the Lord will not chastise us for that, for we have responded appropriately to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That was enough, you see. We have sinned against the Lord, the Spirit convicts us using the Word of God, and we turn from it. That discipline from the Lord is enough. That convicting power of the Holy Spirit is enough. But there are some who profess faith in Christ who sin, and they do so perpetually. And in an unrepentant manner, they do so with a high, arrogant, and rebellious hand. And I am saying that it is those who are in danger of the Lord's severe discipline. 
There's a difference between, let's say, a mother being impatient with her children from time to time, recognizing her fault, confessing it to the Lord to seek His forgiveness and strength, and even asking her children to forgive her for her sin. Did the mother sin when she was harsh with her children? We would say, yes, it was sin. But should we expect the Lord to chastise her for it? Well, no, for she responded with repentance when the Spirit of God convicted her. She judged herself, according to the Scriptures, recognized her failure, and amended her ways. And this is the Christian life, friends, isn't it? This is the Christian life. This is what we all experience day after day. And there is a great difference between that and the one who professes faith in Christ, running headlong into sin without any thought of turning. And it does break my heart as a pastor to see that. But I have witnessed it. And I have also witnessed the Lord chastise those who belong to Him so as to humble them and finally bring them to true repentance. We should remember that David did at one point sin in this way. And I'm thinking here of his sin with Bathsheba. He sinned in a bad way with Bathsheba. And for a time he did not acknowledge his sin, but instead covered it so as to persist in it. And we know that the Lord brought him low so as to bring him to true repentance. And perhaps that is what Psalm 38 is about, that process of of humbling that the Lord brought upon David. We do not know for sure. And we should remember what Paul said to the Corinthians regarding the connection between their unrepentant sin, the worthy partaking of the Lord's Supper, and their sickness. In 1 Corinthians 11.27, Paul says, "...whoever therefore eats the bread..." or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so this is one of the things that the Lord's Supper should do for us each and every Lord's Day as we partake it. It should move us to examine ourselves and, and to ask, is there any sin in my life that needs to be turned from? And if we are to be faithful in Christ Jesus, then we must be quick to turn from that sin, lest we endure the Lord's discipline. You will notice that Paul even said to the Corinthians, This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That church, having been plagued by sin and even unrepentant sin, was also plagued by weakness and illness and even death. And so it would be wrong to assume that every bit of suffering is the direct consequence of sin, but it would also be wrong to assume that it is never the consequence of sin. So why would the Lord give His children over to the natural consequences of His sin? Why would He chastise them with physical and spiritual affliction? Doesn't He love His children, we might ask? And the answer, of course, is yes, He loves His children. And we know that He disciplines us because He loves us. He wishes to refine us. He uses afflictions to humble us. He does often wake us up from our sleepy slumber concerning the danger of our sin by giving us over to its consequences for a time. I wonder if you've experienced this before in life. Maybe for a time you went on playing with sin, acting as if it is no big deal, and then the Lord 
humbled you. He laid you low. And of course, it was not pleasant in the moment, but if you were a child of God, then you look back upon that experience and you say, thanks be to God for His grace and mercy upon me. Thanks be to God that He loved me enough to lay me low so that I might truly cling to Him and walk in a manner that is worthy. That is what David experienced in his life, and that is what he is saying here in Psalm 38. The thing that I would like for you to see in verses 5-8 through is that David did not grow hard-hearted and calloused as he endured the Lord's discipline. No, instead he brought his suffering to the Lord, knowing that the Lord cared for him. Not only did David confess his sin, he also confessed his suffering to the Lord in prayer, saying, again, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning, etc. So he runs to the Lord not only with his sin, turning from his sin and confessing it to the Lord, but he brings his suffering too. He says, Lord, here it is. I bring it to you, O Lord, knowing that you care for me. And we are to do the same, brothers and sisters. Confess your sins to the Lord, run to Him for mercy and grace, and bring your suffering with you to lay it before His feet, knowing that He cares for you. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. In verses 9-14, through we see that though David knew his suffering was the result of sin, And though he knew that his suffering was the chastisement of the Lord, he also knew that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was was faithful to him. And this is so important as well. It, It can be easy for the children of God to assume that the Lord is now shunning them, you know, because they have sinned and they are under his discipline. It can be so easy for us to assume that the Lord is now distant from us, but that was not David's perspective. He knew that The Lord was with him. And that is the third point of this sermon. If you are in Christ, you must never forget that the Lord is with you in the midst of suffering. This is true of the suffering that is unrelated to some particular sin. And this is even true of suffering that is the result of sin. The Lord is near to you. He's near to you even in discipline. If you are in Christ, if you have faith in Him, then you must know for certain that the Lord is with you, for He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 Now let us briefly consider verses 9-14 through and notice that David knew the Lord was near. In verse 9 we read, O Lord, all my longing is before you, my sign is not hidden from you. In other words, David knew that the Lord was not unaware of his suffering. He knew that the Lord had not abandoned him, but was there with him. The Lord's eye was upon him. He knew his suffering. In verse 10 he says, My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. And I do not doubt that David was physically afflicted. That that does seem to be what is being described here in Psalm 38. But what he describes here in verse 10 is spiritual affliction. And this is what sin does to the soul. It, It hurts the heart. It saps our strength, and it even darkens our outlook. I think that is what David is describing. He was enduring physical affliction, and even that was being manifest in his body to where his heart throbbed, his strength was sapped, the light of his eyes it was gone from him. 
And in verse 11, David notes that his friends and companions did abandon him in his trial. He says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. I actually think this verse is very significant in the psalm. You should notice that it is at the heart of the psalm, right in the middle of it. And you should also notice that this verse is alluded to in Luke chapter 22, verse 49, which describes the experience of Jesus on the cross with these words, And all His acquaintances and the women who had followed Him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there's a connection between the, the Greek here in Luke twenty-two forty-nine and the Greek translation of Psalm thirty-eight eleven as well. Remember this. We will return to this observation at the end of the sermon. But for now, notice the contrast. The Lord was faithful to David even as his closest companions failed him. And so it is in life. Many have found that in times of trial and tribulation, those who were thought to be friends prove only to be fair-weather friends. And I would like to make a brief point of application about this before moving on. This must not be the case in Christ's church. We must not be fair-weathered friends in Christ's church, brothers and sisters. But instead, we must be faithful to God and to one another in Christ's church. And this will involve weeping with those who weep. That's hard work, isn't it? I mean, I hope that doesn't come across in the wrong way. But that is hard work. To weep with those who weep, I think many think in this way, I have enough of my own problems. I don't have it in me to come alongside those who are weeping, to weep with them. But yet this is what we are called to do in Christ's church. We are to weep with those who weep. We are to walk with one another through the trials and tribulations of life. And this will even involve Patiently enduring with one another's weaknesses. Did you hear that? Patiently enduring with one another's weaknesses. We must show grace to one another, brothers and sisters. We must love one another earnestly. And we know that love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8 says. Think of it. So here we are living in fellowship with one another, being united together in Christ Jesus. And we all sin. But what does love do? Well, it covers sin. It, it doesn't amplify it or magnify it, but kind of bears with it so that we are able to faithfully walk with one another even as we bear with one another's weaknesses. This does not mean that love ignores sin, nor does it mean that love tolerates unrepentant sin. No, unrepentant sin is not to be tolerated within Christ's church, but it does mean that we are to forgive one another, that we are to bear with one another, that we are to be patient with one another, and walk alongside those who are suffering. Yes, we are to walk alongside even those who are suffering, even if the suffering is self-induced. Think about that. Life is messy, isn't it? Sometimes people get themselves into a big mess, are we to stand aloof from a brother or sister in Christ as they deal with the mess that they have made of things? You know, No. We must be willing to get down in the mire with them to help pull them out. 
we must be willing to get our hands dirty, as it were. David's friends abandoned him, but the Lord did not. That is the point here. The Lord was with him. And in verse 12, David mentions his enemies. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. So we are to picture David all alone, languishing, with enemies, even strong enemies who are just salivating at the opportunity to make an end of him. David's enemies look to capitalize on his weakness to overthrow him. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, David describes his response. He is so weak, he cannot respond. That is the point. But I am like a deaf man. It's as if he just can't even comprehend everything that is going on around him. He feels so very isolated. I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. He doesn't even have the strength to speak up for himself. He could not respond. But again, the point is that David knew the Lord was with him. He was so very weak that he could not even speak to his own defense. His enemies were plotting against him. His friends had abandoned him. But he knew for certain that the Lord was with him. O Lord, he says again, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. I've been abandoned, but you are with me. And this should bring great comfort to all who are in Christ Jesus. You must not interpret the trials and tribulations of life to mean that God has abandoned you. No, if you are in Christ, then God cannot abandon you, for He has determined to set His love upon you. This He has done, not because He regarded you as worthy, but according to His good pleasure. If He has set His love upon you, because He regarded you as worthy, then I suppose He could remove His love from you. But, this is not the case, brothers and sisters. This is not the gospel. God has determined to set His love upon you, not because of anything in you, but according to the good pleasure of His will. He has set His love upon you, He has justified you, and He is sanctifying you, not because of your own merits. It was not because of your merit, your worthiness at the beginning, nor is it because of your merit or your worthiness now, but because of Christ's merit. It's because of what Christ has endured for you and because of what Christ has accomplished for you that God has set His love upon you. And God is faithful. It is impossible for God to go back on His promises. And so the point is this. He will never leave you nor forsake you if you are in Christ Jesus. For He has promised. This should bring great comfort to all who are in Christ Jesus. Lastly, in verses 15 through 22 we find a most wonderful expression of faith. David's hope was in the Lord and in the Lord only. And this must be true for you and me. We must have the Lord as our only hope. Listen carefully to his words. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. David had this ability to wait on the Lord, and we must have this ability also But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. 
Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is quite a declaration that David makes here. He calls the Lord his salvation. And he exclaims at the beginning here in verse 15 that he is waiting on the Lord. He is confident that the Lord will answer him. And the question that I have is this. Where did David get this confidence? Where did he get this confidence? What made him think that he could cry out to God for mercy as he did in this psalm? After all, he admits that his suffering was due to his sin. He deserved it, in other words. So, on what basis did he plead for mercy, saying in verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath? Where did he get the confidence that the Lord was with him, saying in verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you, my sighing is not hidden from you? And why would he set his hope so firmly on the Lord, saying in verse 15, But for you, O Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer... And on what basis does he make his final appeal in verse 21 and 22, saying, Do not forsake me, O Lord. My God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Where does he get this confidence that he can appeal to God in this way, given his sin? The basis cannot be his own righteousness, for he admits that he has none. It was his own sin that brought this misery upon him, but the basis for his hope could only be the gospel. It could only be the gospel. David knew that the Lord was gracious. He knew that the Lord had promised to forgive all of his sins in the Messiah. He understood that the Lord was his salvation. And so what did he do? He did the very thing that he encouraged us to do at the end of Psalm 2. He ran to the Lord for refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, he said. And he himself did run to the Lord for refuge. I've told you before that the Psalms are all about Jesus the Christ. The Psalms are all about Jesus the Christ. And yes, it is true Psalm 38 was about David and his experience. We cannot ignore that. We have not ignored that. And yet Psalm 38 does also pertain to Jesus. It is about David and his experiences. It applies to us. We have also made some application to ourselves already, and we will do more of that in just a moment. But Psalm 38 is about Jesus the Christ. You say, well, how could that be? How can these words be found on Jesus' lips, given that so much of this psalm is about the confession of, of, of sin? Notice two things. First of all, David could not appeal to God for mercy as he did, nor have confidence that God was with him, nor have the hope that the Lord was his Savior, apart from the promise of God concerning a coming Messiah who would atone for all his sins. So in this sense, Psalm 38 is about Jesus. The Christ is revealed here in this psalm, for it is in Christ that David hopes. Secondly, this psalm is about Jesus the Christ, for Jesus experienced what David experienced, but on a higher level and without committing sin. Jesus suffered as David suffered. Indeed, the very wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. Jesus' enemies sought his destruction. 
And Jesus did also trust in the Lord, just as David did. But Jesus the Christ is different in this respect. He suffered not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. The sins of his elect were imputed to him. He endured the wrath of God, the wrath that David, you and I, deserve to endure. His friends abandoned him. His enemies prevailed over him. He died and was buried. And on the third day he rose again in victory, for he had earned our salvation. This psalm is about Jesus. Every word spoken by David could be spoken by Jesus the Christ with the exception of these. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness, and I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But even these words, which belong properly only to David, and which may also belong to us, They do still illuminate the Christ, for they show that He, the Christ, suffered for sin. He did not suffer for His own sin, but for the sins of those given to Him by the Father. The sins were imputed to Christ. David's sin, yours and mine, all who run to Christ for refuge, Christ suffered for our sins. And so I would encourage you to read the psalm again today sometime. But read it as if uttered by Christ, and you'll see what I mean. With the exception of the confession of personal sin, these are the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God. And then labor to make this connection. These could only be the words of King David, because they would also be the words of King Jesus. Did you hear that little remark there? Psalm 38 How could David say this? How could he appeal to God for mercy as he did? How could he have such confidence that God was with him and would not abandon him and would be his refuge, would be his Savior? How could Jesus utter these words? He could only utter these words because these words would also be the words of his greater Son, Jesus the Christ, who suffered and died for the sins of others. And so let me conclude with four very brief suggestions for application First of all, as you reflect upon Psalm 38, I pray that you are moved to carefully avoid sin, seeing in this psalm that sin does lead only to death and destruction. We do not want to find ourselves in the place that David was in. It seemed to be a very miserable place as he languished there because of his, of, of his sin. Up to this point, I have not said anything about the title of this psalm. The ESV renders it, For the Memorial Offering. The KJV and the NKJV say, To bring to remembrance. To bring to remembrance. And I think this is more to the point. In Psalm 38, David remembers his sin, its destructiveness, and how the Lord was faithful to preserve and refine him through suffering. And may we learn something from David's remembrance. May we also be disciplined to remember our own past. Do not forget how destructive sin is, brothers and sisters, and avoid it. But also, do not forget the faithfulness of the Lord. He is faithful to discipline those He loves. Secondly, if you are in Christ Jesus, united to Him by faith, may I exhort you to patiently endure suffering, knowing that the Lord is with you. He is working to refine you through suffering. He will keep you, and in due time He will lift you up. The title of this sermon is, 
For you, O Lord, do I wait. And this is drawn from verse 15 where David says, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And as God's children, we must learn to wait patiently on the Lord and to know that God will answer. To use Peter's words, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. We need to learn to wait on the Lord and to endure sufferings of various kinds, trials and tribulations, so that God may accomplish His purposes through them. Thirdly, may I exhort you to patiently endure even the Lord's chastisement. When God disciplines you, turn from the sin, brothers and sisters, run to God through faith in Christ, and once there, wait on Him, enduring His discipline, knowing that He disciplines those He loves. Do not misinterpret the discipline of the Lord. If you are in Christ, then God will discipline you because He loves you. This is a truth that is learned in homes where fathers and mothers are faithful to discipline their children in love. By the way, fathers and mothers, we need to teach our children this lesson, not only in word, but in deed. We need to be faithful to discipline in love. And this principle is indeed learned through experience in homes where fathers and mothers discipline their children in love. The children in homes like these learn from a young age that discipline and love are not contradictory things. But I'm afraid that those who have grown up in abusive homes or in homes where love meant no discipline, these may have a more difficult time understanding this marvelous truth. And they will have to learn it from the Scriptures and in the church. God disciplines those He loves. Discipline and love are not contradictory things. And the faithful know this. And they will run to God and not from Him when He disciplines. Fourthly and lastly, if you have not believed upon Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then I must plead with you to flee to Christ for refuge today. That is what the Psalms are consistently urging us to do. Flee to Christ for refuge today. We have violated His law and thought, word, and deed. We stand guilty before Him and do deserve His wrath. But God has graciously provided a refuge, a Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. Yes, it is true, God is love. Yes, it is true that God is merciful, gracious, and kind. But if we are to come to Him and stand right before Him, we must come to Him through faith in the Savior that He has provided. He has provided a way. Jesus taught this saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. John 14, 6. And in John 3, 16 through 18, the matter is stated most clearly. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Friends, we must run to Christ for refuge. For there is refuge found in Him and in no other. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Savior that you have provided. 
We thank you that in Him we have the forgiveness of sins. We have been justified and we are even being sanctified by you now. That is, we are being made more and more holy. We thank you, O Lord, for the way you sanctify us through the trials and tribulations of life. And we thank you also for the way that you sanctify us by disciplining us when we do sin against you. Father, I pray that it would be our prayer, each and every one of us, that you sanctify us further. Father, we know this is for our good, it is for your glory. We know you discipline those you love. Help us to never ever forget it, O Lord. And help us to know that you are faithful to all whom you have redeemed in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.